First question this evening, which says, When first we went into lockdown, there was a kind of camaraderie between people. Now that the lockdown is being lifted, it risks casting fellow human beings as a potential source of infection, someone to be avoided, and as an enemy who is undermining sociability. How might we handle this? Well, this is a, a real question. It's not just speculation. It's, it's, so I hear it. It's coming from a place of real concern, something wholesome, something good, possibly being lost. And so I want to start off with being careful that we're not just answering the question from our heads. Um, we... We've all been strongly conditioned to find identity and security in our heads and our thinking. We take pride in our mental capacity. And, However, if we try to address life's real questions with merely thinking, then, of course, we will end up being disappointed. Now... That's not to say that thinking doesn't have its place, of course. Being able to think straight is really important. However, thinking alone is not enough. Thoughts, all thoughts, even the most clever, impressive, amazing thoughts are approximations, abstractions. So let's be careful any serious question that we're wanting to inquire into, let's check to see that all of us is engaged in this, not just one aspect of my head. And there's an example of how thinking about something is not the same as the reality. It's like if I'm in my, my cottage at nine o'clock at night feeling hungry and, and I'm thinking about breakfast and and I'm, I really want to eat breakfast, and I'm sitting there thinking about breakfast. But thinking about breakfast and eating breakfast are totally different things. The thought about breakfast, in fact, if I dwell on the thought about breakfast, it can make me feel more uncomfortable. Whereas the reality in the morning, so somebody brings my tray of power porridge, and Alex is kindly prepared, and... Uh, soaked overnight four whole grains and slowly cooked it and added just the right amount of, of uh, sunflower seeds and sea salt and tahini and served it up and this nourishing, palatable, uh, agreeable power porridge is 
something altogether different from the thought about breakfast. And once again, our thoughts absolutely have their place. Being able to abstract and speculate can be very useful because thinking gives direction to another quality of inquiry, a more embodied inquiry. So with this question, how do we look at, how do we consider the situation where something that we valued, like the good feeling of the nourishing feeling of community, the camaraderie, how good that was, as the questioner suggests, with a threat with losing that. So how do we approach this? Well, thinking to start off with, and then, as we have discussed many times before, considering the whole body-mind, here and now, judgment-free quality of attention. Whole body-mind, here and now, judgment-free. This means we need to feel what we feel in response to this question. The loss, what, is the, what does loss feel like in the body? What does loss feel like? Where do we feel loss? Not just what do we think about loss, we can come up with a, a quick, mental, easy solution, argument as to why we shouldn't compromise this goodness of, of community spirit. Will that really make any difference? However, if we bring our inquiry more into the body and feel, feel the fear of loss, afraid of losing something that we valued. This is normal. I mean, this, is, this is a really totally normal experience for human beings from the time we're born till the time we die. Regularly, the experience of fear of loss, the kind of pain the Buddha talked about of losing something that we, we find agreeable. So where do we feel it? In our hearts? Is it a associated with a kind of sadness? Is it okay? Are we able to look at that, receive that, include that feeling? Because there's an intelligence in that. That's information. We don't want to be in a rush to bypass how we feel in our hearts about the fear of loss. Here and now, if our quality of attention is not being sufficiently trained to be here in this body, in this place, now, at this time, then there's a very real risk that part of our attention is going to be siphoned off into fantasies about the future, how terrible it's going to be when people start bickering with each other and being unpleasant, or memories of the past and getting lost in the past and lost in the future detracts from a high quality of investigation. So whole body-mind, here and now, judgment-free. These are just ways of talking about orienting our attention 
so as to reach realistic solutions. We might, if we're just in our heads, thinking about why we shouldn't lose the camaraderie feelings that we had when this lockdown began, and why we should protect the spirit of community, and how in the past so much of the suffering in society has come about as a result of the absence of community and the advantages of having community. We could be thinking about those things and completely lost, not really grounded here, not really with this experience, this moment. And so even though we might reach some interesting split-off space within ourselves, we've still got how we feel about here that we're going to have to deal with. So let's be careful, whole body mind, here and now, judgment-free awareness. If there is some judgment, like for instance, I shouldn't be feeling what I'm feeling. Let's backtrack a bit and look at that. any tendencies we might have to be always taking sides for and against. Remember the, the, the discourse of the Buddha's teaching that we recited tonight, the Dhamma Chakrava Watana Sutta. The middle way, that perspective that sees, that witnesses to the movement towards taking sides for and against. And remembering the possibility of judgment-free awareness, just knowing awareness. So this real question, there's enough preparation so that we're really present for it. And then we can inquire more competently. So then reflecting on the goodness, the nourishment, the wholesomeness of cooperative community, why would we behave in ways that would compromise that? Why might we do that? What's going to bring that about? If, if, there is, if this is the case that we start to view each other in ways that damage the sense of community, why are we ascribing to such views? Why are we entertaining such views? Well, maybe it's because we just don't see the consequences. The false views we have and the false thinking that we have create chaos. However, unless we've stopped to investigate and reach our own understanding, our own conviction, our own sense of confidence. This matters. The views that we entertain and the thoughts that we follow make a big difference and make a massive difference to our own internal world and in the external world. And if we haven't looked at them, well then we suffer the consequences of that. I remember when I was growing up in Moronsville in New Zealand, this, across the house from where we lived, there was a family. I don't know in the 15 years that we lived there, I don't think we ever spoke to the people who lived in that house. 15 years, nearly, roughly 15 years we lived there. And I don't think we ever spoke to them, not even once. And 
I remember one day asking my my mother, "What was that? What's that image that they've got in the garden?" And it was uh, an image of Mary, and they were a Roman Catholic family. And and my mother's response was, "We don't talk about such things." What's going on there? We, somebody because they've got an image of of Mary in their garden that we don't even talk about it, let alone talk to the people. What it's about is that the good feelings that we get from clinging to our belief systems are threatened by somebody who's got a different belief system. That's what's happening. Our belief system says such and such, and their belief system doesn't go along with that. And so we perceive them as a threat, as somehow a danger, or even an enemy. That's, that's really regrettable. And so it is with so much of human society that it's so sad and so unnecessary. This inability to reflect on our own reaction, the, the lack of competence when it comes to managing our inner reality. We don't know how to even receive the feelings we have about being threatened. And so what happens when we don't receive those feelings? We project those feelings. Now, if we have done our work and we have some level of competence, we do have some spaciousness, our heart is open to some reasonable degree and we meet somebody who has a different set of beliefs, a different way of viewing the world, and it triggers a feeling of fear or threat within us, then there's a chance that maybe we can receive that feeling, receive it without becoming it, without collapsing around to it, without collapsing into it. And then we can investigate and see, well, people are different. So that's always been that way. Life has always been like that and always will be like that. If we haven't inspected it, if we don't understand this dynamic, if we don't see this for ourselves, then the heart does contract, the field of awareness does constrict, and we don't have the space to feel our reaction, to receive what we feel. And then that means that that feeling is projected out, whether it's fear or anger or indignation. You make me feel threatened. You hurt me. We don't see what we're doing. So, contemplating this, maybe, hopefully, we start to get a recognition that this projection, this inability to see what we're seeing, is something, there's something we can do about that. Maybe there's a chance we can train ourselves to see what we're seeing mm. instead of seeing our projections. If this possibility dawns on us, then that's the arising of hope, of confidence in this possibility. However, it does take a lot of effort. And you maybe we get some feeling of confidence in this possibility and well why don't we why don't we just stop projecting onto the world onto others why don't we just stop doing it 
Well, because it really isn't easy. Mental habits get ingrained, get conditioned very early on in life. Habits of indulging and habits of avoiding and habits of believing in our thoughts and our views. And to correct those takes a lot of effort. In that verse, in the Dhammapada, verse 34, where the Buddha gives an excellent illustration, is, uh, as a fish which has been dragged from its home in the water and thrown up on dry land will thrash about, so will the heart tremble on withdrawing from the current of Mara. As a fish which has been dragged from its home and thrown up on dry land will thrash about, so will the heart tremble on withdrawing from the current of Mara. And Mara here representing deluded egoity, the unawakened personality, the confused state. If we are inspired to do something about that, if we sense this is not an obligation, this unfortunate situation of people endlessly making their own lives and the lives of others miserable is not hopeless. We do something about it, then we can feel inspired. However, we are left with a, a challenge, and as the Buddha is pointing out, is a, the heart can tremble when you decide to stop investing in the stories that we've been telling ourselves for a long time. However, there's nothing wrong with hard work. I mean, there's hard work produces results, and why would we not want to do hard work? I mean, if you think about some of the achievements that humanity have arrived at. You think about Peter Higgs's effort to prove what's these days called the Higgs field or the Higgs boson. Many years, a lot of hard work and commitment. And this is really what it comes down to, that if we want to make a difference, if we see the sadness of the human predicament, the predicament of the unawakened state. We see it in ourselves and see it in others, and then we're inspired to do something about it. Well, yes, it's going to be work, but we can approach that work gladly, gratefully. The effort that it takes can appear intimidating, but we don't have to be fooled by that. Yes, it's hard work. However, the potential benefit that can come from doing this work is a quality of confidence, of faith, that has a better chance of receiving a really tricky question like this, a really important question like this, and reaching realistic responses. The second question, which is in a similar theme, says, How do we skillfully receive the news about a monk one has known for many years disrobing? I am aware of the feeling of disappointment. This is Anicca. This is becoming birth and death, seeing my Sakaya Ditti. I am not getting lost in the feelings 
but feeling some grief. Once again, the place to begin is to check that we're not merely attempting to address this real question on the level of abstractions, on the level of thinking. We might have all sorts of thoughts about how to receive such news. However, the question is referring to grief, to the perception of loss. And we, we don't do the question, we don't do ourselves justice if we are too quick to respond from our heads. So coming into the body, whole body mind awareness, feeling what we feel. Where do we feel grief? Is it a constriction in the throat? Is it a tension behind the eyes? Is it a contraction of the chest? Is it the pain in the belly? Where do we feel grief? And we can ask, where do we feel grief? And here and now, register. Here and now, this is grief. Now, if the question, I don't know what the question is really referring to, but if it's referring to the idea that there's a right way to receive such news, well, that's something else altogether. What I would recommend is feeling whatever we feel. We were talking a minute ago about retraining ourselves to possibly learn how to see what we see. Well, also the same thing applies to learning to really feel what we feel. Whatever we feel on receiving bad news is the right feeling. Now, how we engage that feeling and how we respond to that feeling, that's something else. However, let's not bypass that feeling. There's a lot of energy and feeling of grief. A lot of information by turning to that feeling of grief. So whole body mind, here and now, not just lost in stories. We could be lost in stories. If we're just up in our head trying to figure it out, the mind could easily drift after all these years of supporting this monk and then he go and does this or in the future, how's he going to adjust to the world? And That's something else altogether. Right here and now, let's prepare ourselves for meeting this experience, the perception of loss and the feeling of grief that arises. Mm. Whole body, mind, here and now, judgment-free. Do we think that we shouldn't feel stuff? Do we have compulsive judging mind still ruling the roost? If so, then once again, step back and remember, no judging the judging mind. We're conditioned to be compulsively judging. That's what our education system did. Always taking sides, for and against. Mm. Right and wrong. Should and shouldn't. However, inspired by the Buddhist teaching of the middle way, to make an effort to find that perspective whereby we don't have to be taking sides for and against ourselves for and against life. That doesn't mean to say that we're agreeing with everything that goes on, but we're in a position to be able to study 
what we're experiencing, studying what we see, studying what we feel, studying the feeling of grief and our relationship to grief. Many years ago, I can remember watching, I was staying at somebody's house, somebody's place in, in London, and there was a program on the BBC, a documentary that had been made in Cambodia. And this was at the end of the war, and the program was about following this soldier who'd been wounded in the war and lost a leg, or lost a limb, I think it was his leg. And, and he was gradually making his way back to his village. And there's an unfortunate belief system in Cambodia that if you lose a limb, that means that when you die, you can't go to heaven. I mean, losing a limb is bad enough, and to have to entertain such a, a story is also extra unpleasant and painful. So the film crew, or two film crews, were filming both parties, the, the soldier who was coming home, and also the family to whom the soldier was returning to. Returning to. And, and then they filmed the coming together, and you can imagine what a sad scene that was, and... I can remember on that occasion watching it and noticing noticing the welling up of tears and then the tears streaming down my face but also noticing perhaps in a new way which is why I remember it that it didn't have to be wrong to be crying when we cry, it's very easy to get judgmental. Is there a way of feeling sadness, of letting the tears flow, and have a quality of awareness at the same time? In other words, as we've spoken about before, rather than trying to be free from suffering, which we're not, we certainly shouldn't try to pretend we're awakened if we're not awakened. So let's get interested in the reality of what we are, which is sad. Can we, are we free enough? Do we have enough space? Do we have enough sensitivity? Do we have enough balance to feel what we feel, including intense sadness, let the tears flow, but without being defined by that? Maybe if we can do that, we discover that crying doesn't have to exhaust us, certainly doesn't have to define us. So whole body, mind, here and now, judgment-free awareness, feeling what we feel. And then this question is about how, do we, how might we skillfully prepare ourselves for this kind of event? Or how might we skillfully receive such uncomfortable news? Again, as we've discussed recently, the possibility that when we encounter loss that it's not just the pain of this moment that we're dealing with this is pain plus plus this is this is potentially old unreceived pain who knows how much pain we've got stored away everybody's got stuff stored away 
whether it's the pain of loss or the pain of indignation or pain of betrayal or pain of anxiety, fear. And things happen early on in life and we're not ready to live through them. And so what do we do with them? We deny them. And in so doing, we create more kamma. And the kamma of our denial of life gets stored away in our hearts and in our bodies and in our minds. And traditionally, this is known as, this is referred to as old kamma, or the Thai word for it is gamgao. Gamgao. Old kamma, old unreceived life. And in a situation where we experience loss, then it can serve as a trigger for all the old loss, all those old moments of loss that we didn't know how to handle. There they are, right in front of us. And now we have to handle them. Or we distract ourselves, self-medicate. Hopefully not, but that's often what happens. And You notice at funerals where people's old unreceived pain of previous moments of loss comes to the surface and so people tend to just get drunk and distract themselves from it. Actually, it's really an opportunity for purification. When life whacks us with some moment of intensity and this old unreceived pain comes to the surface, this is an opportunity. So, on occasion like hearing the news of some monk who we've known for some years disrobing, our rational mind can probably come up with all sorts of reasons about why we should be sympathetic and, and understanding and compassionate towards him. All, all sorts of reasons might be behind his disrobing. Almost certainly it wouldn't have been easy. However, maybe it releases something else. If it does, then let's not miss the opportunity. This is the chance to purify awareness free our hearts and bodies and minds from these accumulations of old, unreceived life. Considering cultivating skillfulness also, if we find that we have maybe struggled or we we we're, have difficulties when something like a perception of loss arises or a perception of betrayal or indignation arises. It's skillful to not wait until we're in the midst of a flare-up and risk overwhelm. When we're in a good space, when we're in a place where we feel strong and okay, that's the time to recollect that challenge. If we wait until the challenge whacks us, there is a real risk of overwhelm. However, if we've got some perspective on that happening, then when, as I are saying, we're in a good place and feeling confident, put some time aside, sit comfortably and bring it to mind. When that trigger arises and that feeling gets activated, 
then this happens. The body starts to tremble, the heart starts to tremble, and maybe physically even. I was speaking recently about having that conversation with a member of my family and, and my guts trembling. That's the kind of pain that human beings have to endure. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that there's something going wrong. And let's not miss the opportunity when these experiences come to us to see it as an opportunity to purify awareness, to prepare ourselves in advance so that we don't miss these opportunities. I'm reminded of a talk I heard, a recorded talk I heard of Ajahn Chah's when this was towards the end of his life and he was staying in what Tamsang Pet in the temple of a cave of diamond light just a bit further north from his main monastery, Wat Nongpapong. And he, he had been unwell and he was staying there and it's uh, right on top of a, a, a hill and so maybe a nice cool breeze. And anyway, somebody was visiting and happened to be recording the conversation. And in that conversation, Ajahn Chah is talking about how people sometimes, they think that the real practice is sitting and walking, when in fact, in fact the real practice, as he said, is, well, the Thai expression is, which means that when the mood impacts on the heart, when there's a flare-up, in other words, that's the real practice. That's the point of real practice. Sitting and walking, that's preparation, formal practice, sitting and walking. That's for honing down our spiritual faculties, training and conscious sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya, these potentials that we have as human beings, really investing in honing them down, developing a conscious relationship with faith, with energy, mindfulness, collectedness and discernment. That's the preparation. And then, in daily life, sooner or later, we're going to be hit with something we don't know how to handle, and there's a flare-up, and are we there for it in that moment? That's the thing. Are we there for it? Or does it take us over? In the beginning, probably late teens, early 20s, we start to recognise, oh, I'm somebody with this sort of an issue. Well, we note it. I'm somebody with this sort of an issue. This is something I'm going to have to work with. And maybe we work with it for the rest of our lives, but little by little, we learn to be more prepared for it. So when there is a flare-up, there's less chance that we're going to get overwhelmed by it. So skillful preparation is something that's worth paying attention to. And once again, I would recommend we pay attention to what we were discussing a minute ago, this subject of projection. When we haven't looked into our own inner world, our own hearts and minds adequately, we haven't recognised yet that there is this dynamic going on and when there's too much pain to handle and our hearts are too closed, our field of awareness is too contracted and we can't receive ourselves in that intensity, then the energy leaps out and we blame somebody else for our suffering and it feels so, so justified, so 
absolutely justified. That's when we haven't inspected it. And that is really regrettable. If we do get round to inspecting it and start to get a feeling for, oh, there's something we can do about this, this projecting is not an obligation. You know, I'm not even seeing that person anymore. That Roman Catholic family across the road, or that monk that just disrobed, who's suffering, just like I suffer, we don't see that. We just see it as somebody who hurt us or offended us or made us feel threatened or let us down. And we're seeing our projection. So if we do start to see this, we start to get a feeling for how we can undo this habit, then say how, how regrettable it is that we didn't see it sooner. Maybe remorse kicks in all the time that we've blamed our parents or people who've cared for us or supported us and just because we weren't able to meet ourselves, receive ourselves when we needed to, our heart energy leapt out and landed on the other person and then we blamed them for our pain. Remorse is perfectly appropriate. So long as we have whole body, mind, here and now, judgment, free awareness, let ourselves feel the remorse, let the remorse teach us what we need to learn and don't use it as some sort of a weapon for hurting ourselves with. So finally also, with regards to this question of skillfully receiving such difficult news, let's also remember to slow down. We can be so in so much of a hurry to overcome our suffering. We power Tanhai. It's not really an equanimous, skillful investigation of the reality of suffering. It's just we power Tanhai, craving to get rid of something. Remember what the Buddha said is, is for, for not seeing two things that we stay stuck in this regrettable circumstance. Not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. So let's determine to retrain our attention, and that means our whole body mind, not just our heads. Retrain our attention so that we can be here quicker, be here more of the time. Learn to maybe rest in just knowing awareness instead of always following out after the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and so on. That's our habit, that's our conditioning. Following out after those objects and, and then not stay at home. And We can appreciate the possibility and the benefit of staying at home in the heart of awareness where, from which perspective we can contemplate. This is dangerous, this predicament that we're in. It's dangerous if we're caught up in always blaming others for our suffering. We all know we're going to die eventually. We all know on some level that we're going to lose everything, everything that we hold dear. We're going to lose all of it. So are we going to distract ourselves right up until the last moment and then struggle more? Or are we going to pick up the challenge and heed the teachings that we've received and really get interested, really get interested in this the reality of this struggle. A long time, very good friend of the monastery here recently shared with me how she had been home for a visit 
to see her family and who she, well, she thought she, she loved them dearly and, and I'm sure on many levels, in many ways she did. But when she came back from that home visit, she was just filled with pain. She said her heart has never been so, so pained, so much anger, so much ill will, so much aversion. And the way she described it, it, it sounded to me like a reaction to betrayal and but whatever it was that triggered it, it doesn't matter what it was, this is what she had to deal with. And fortunately, she was so well established in her practice that she wrote it out. She didn't jump to conclusions. She didn't talk too much about it. She stayed with it. Now, when you're in the midst of one of those kind of processes where you're challenged to receive gum gao or old, unreceived pain, then a lot of formal practice is probably not a good idea. A lot of getting very subtle is not a good idea because if this stuff surfaces when you're in a very subtle state, then it can cause more wounding, which is even more difficult to deal with later on. However, this person found her way through it and it took more than a year and then she said it just settled. The matter just settled. and It's not that the pain's gone away completely, but there's not the pain plus plus anymore. It's just this moment pain. Before we can get to this moment pain, the experience of the loss in this moment, often it's the case that we have to deal with the backlog. And if we can remember this principle, then it helps us be gentle with ourselves and, and patient with ourselves. When we take on this task, it really, really can appear challenging, almost certainly will at times appear challenging. Maybe we even feel like, I can't do this. But if we consider it as if you've learned another language, if you've ever learned another language, you've become competent at learning one language and then you go and learn another language and you come across you know, somebody talking Russian or Czech or, or Chinese or, or Thai for that matter, Thai language, Thai language and Chinese language, the tonal languages. I remember when I f first started learning Thai language. How can <laughs> how can you learn to speak in this with people like the word cow in English? We say cow, one word. In Thai, there's cow, 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 cow. Five different words, five completely different meanings. Pa cow means white. Kao ma means come in. Gin cow means to eat rice. Dai cow means to receive some news. And hua cow means knees. Cow, 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 cow. How, how can you learn a language like that? It really, in the beginning, it can really look, this is too much. And it can take a good while, but with some effort, you can, we can learn these things. And so even if this task that we've been discussing this evening, particularly around the perception of, of loss and our reaction to feeling threatened with possible loss. Even if the task seems daunting, let's not believe it. Let's not disbelieve it. Maybe it is too much. Maybe it isn't too much. But what we know right now is that we can get interested in this, interested in being honest with ourselves about it. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Om Namah Shivaya.